Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that I think he's going to teach us a lot about, you know, building and scaling, about you know, creating a powerful founding team, about the chicken and the egg problem in business, and then also we're gonna be talking about healthcare quite a bit. So I guess without further ado, Jay Desai, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So originally born in Wheaton, Illinois. So how was life growing up there? Well, um, Wheaton is famous uh, for having the most churches per capita, um, and I was not a Christian growing up in uh, in Wheaton, <laughs> Illinois. Um, okay. So, um, it was, but there was a, there was a good community of folks. My parents are from India, and um, it was a, it was a great it was a great place to grow up. I don't I don't have any complaints. So obviously, your parents immigrants from India, uh, and I'm sure that. That that gave you, you know, or that that influenced you a little bit into this uh, entrepreneurial journey. Perhaps you know, like uh, them, you know, seeing the hard work and dedication of coming into a country, you know, the land of opportunity. So, so how much do you think that influenced, you know, you and 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 that entrepreneurial drive? No, oh, for sure. I mean, my my dad um, is a is a pharmacist, and um, he always uses, he, and he has a, a small pharmacy that he he owns in the South side of Chicago. And that always was what he, where he worked and where we used to, um, you know, he sort of where we, how he provided for the family. Um, and, uh, he used to say, why would I work for Walgreens or CVS when I could work for myself? Um, you know, uh, so there was a strong bias towards, um, you know, kind of creating your own destiny, creating your own, um, you know, sort of environment uh, to, to, to thrive. So, yeah, no, it's certainly an influence for me. Very cool. And then, obviously, after you studied at the Michigan, you did a couple of years, I mean, four years to be more precise, where you did a little bit of investment banking and then also a little bit of private equity. And I'm, think, I mean, I'm thinking here that I'm sure that that gave you a, a good perspective, you know, as you're thinking about perhaps, you know, patterns of what makes good businesses and bad businesses and, 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 and different, different things that you recognize, you know, on how to build a path, you know, potentially towards success. So I guess, you know, like how perhaps your experience at Lehman and, and Parthenon shaped your perspective about business. 
Yeah, so I would say Lehman, you know, was a was a traditional, you know, investment banking analyst program for, you know, hyper ambitious but aimless, you know, college graduates. Um, and so what that taught me more than business, I mean, taught you a little bit about capital markets and, you know, mergers and acquisitions and, you know, um, IPOs and financing to a certain degree. But but I would say mostly uh, the vast majority of what I learned there was how to work hard, um, you know, PowerPoint, Excel, how to frame an argument, how to make uh, make a point clearly and succinctly. Uh, and um, I, and also what types of cultures I really did not like. Um, so FaceTime cultures, really competitive cultures that were competitive for the wrong reasons, um, you know, very male-dominated cultures, uh, not very diverse. You know, those are some of the things that I saw that I just, I knew intrinsically didn't agree with me, didn't feel right. Um, but at, at, at Parthenon is really where I would say I started carving out my my sort of market-driven or customer-driven journey where I, I started really diving into healthcare and understanding the healthcare industry, you know, how how dollars are flowing through the healthcare system, um, how providers, um, you know, healthcare providers are able to uh, compete and, and what the basis of competition is when it comes to uh, quality of care versus, you know, the, the cost of care, just how convoluted the system of reimbursement and uh, how government, you know, um, policy shapes ultimately how patients get care. Um, so really the, the business of healthcare, the business of medicine, um, and all the various actors um, and how they, you know, how they all kind of fit together. So it was a really great launching uh, launching place for me to to understand the industry. And also, I would say what makes a good investment. You know, like it, it, I did start getting a, a sense of, you know, how you think about a deal, you know, how you think about a financial model and um, how you think about, you know, financing and debt versus equity and some of those some of those basic principles. It, it, it Most of it has been learned on the job, um, but I did I did get a good foundation there. And in fact, uh, what a foundation that you invest in a company that you end up uh, going and, and working for. So what, what was that? Right. Yeah. Um, the other the other thing I'll say that I, I really got a lot of exposure to is just, again, um, you know, uh, the types of people kind of around culture, um, the types of people that I was really drawn to. And, you know, I loved working for uh, my boss at, um, at Parthenon Capital. And, you know, we still have a very close relationship today. He's actually um, an advisor, uh, an equity advisor in, in my company today, um, and somebody I've stayed very close to over the over the years. Um, and the reason I joined uh, one of the companies that um, Parthenon had invested in was because of um, you know uh, the CEO that the private equity fund I was at actually um, hired in and brought into this new company that they had invested in. So so this this gentleman um, uh, Dom Meff was somebody who I I found to be um, visionary and inspirational and, you know, a really outstanding um, executive and manager and somebody who I just was really excited to learn from. Um, and, uh, you know, I got a lot of intimate knowledge of the business and, you know, was very excited about its prospects uh, as we looked at it from an investing perspective and then, um, you know, was able to make the leap. Um, I uh, dealt with um, uh, living in Orlando because it wasn't my favorite city, but I was there for the professional experience and, and really enjoyed um, everything that I learned from that. Well, at least you had Disneyland, you know, which is, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure probably at that point in your stage of your life, maybe you enjoyed it as much, but uh, there's always a positive <laughs> and a negative. <laughs> so really I guess, point. Jay, so here, yeah, absolutely. So so I guess here after this, you know, you go into a fellowship and I think that this is the segue into 
into MBA, into Wharton. I mean, why? I mean, it seems that now you've been, you know, in the labor market for quite a bit. Uh, why did you decide to go into doing an MBA? Yeah, so I, I will say that that at that point, it represented sort of a pivot in my career. Um, I would say that, you know, I was thinking hard about healthcare um, and where there are uh, opportunities for, um, you know, me to sort of extend and, and take my career. And I, I just started getting really jaded by um, how the way we pay for healthcare um, shapes ultimately uh, what care patients get. And, and as an investor, I felt very much like a lemming where we were just chasing where, um, you know, healthcare dollars are, are flowing. And actually, I, I do remember at one point, um, Medicare was slashing reimbursement rates for a lot of procedures, things like uh, nursing home stays and, you know, certain surgeries and other procedures. Um, and so I remember we as a firm were like, we should really move into things that are cash pay. And I found myself at a aesthetic medicine conference um, where there were, you know, um, uh, manufacturers of um, implants and uh, laser hair removal and, um, you know, uh, cellular ablation for, you know, um, fat, ex excess fat, you know, that shows up on your skin. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with those industries. I think they're all very important um, for certain people. But for me, I just didn't, you know, I didn't find myself getting very motivated by just chasing where the dollar was going. I was actually really interested in creating um, businesses and how business can be a very powerful force for change for actually making things better in the world. And, um, you know, I just, again, no, no value judgments on, on other industries. But for me, um, I was very interested in working um, on products and services that were improving patient care, improving uh, how, um, how we deliver care. Uh, doing it more efficiently um, to save costs because we spend a lot of money in this country on healthcare. Um, and, you know, I did a fellowship uh, in New York City called the Coro Fellowship. And then I went to Wharton for business school. And those were all kind of part of my education to to pivot out of, you know, for-profit healthcare um, into, um, you know, uh, uh, something that felt a little bit more mission-driven. Got it. Got it. And then after Wharton, then you really dive into it completely and uh, joined the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. So um, so what did you learn there, you know, about, because obviously this is the best, you know, segue that one could imagine, you know, like before you started patient ping. Uh, but here there, you really got, you know, exposed to this Affordable Care Act and, you know, the, the different new things that this would bring, you know, to the equation. I mean, what were you experiencing there? I mean, and, and I guess, you know, at one point, you know, like, do you think of patient ping, you know, and, and, and bring it to life? Yeah. So I, I got very, very motivated by the um, call to action to build programs that um, reduced the cost of healthcare and improved the quality of healthcare, which, you know, to me, that's, that's, you know, a really wonderful thing when you can solve for both of those, meaning, you invest in things that keep people out of the hospital. You keep them, you know, safe and healthy at home, um, you know, preventive care, uh, coordination of care, things like that, that keep you from um, receiving care and actually focus on health. Um, and, and so, you know, the Affordable Care Act had a very large part of it uh, that was focused specifically on this agenda of, you know, uh, reducing costs, improving quality. And, and, you know, at Wharton, I was the only guy that went to, um, you know, the the federal the the public sector um, to the to the federal government. I think people had had 
um, you know, went through their two-year education, which wasn't, uh, which wasn't inexpensive, and were excited for jobs in the private sector that were, you know, um, really uh, high-paying and, you know, very um, high status, um, and, you know, really incredible careers that people uh, launched out of, out of business school. For me, um, going to the, the public sector, going to the government um, was, was guided, um, again, once again, by, by the people. And you'll see as, as a theme throughout my entire career and, and even now as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a CEO, um, everything for me is about, you know, the relationships and the people and surrounding yourself with the right, the right you know, kind of people. Um, so, you know, but going to, going to Medicare, it was people all across the country um, who were thinking about how to make care better in their communities. And these were, you know, serious leaders across across the country. You know, people who had invented things like accountable care organizations and bundled payments. And for folks who um, are in the sort of wonky healthcare policy world, those are, you know, very very meaningful, you know, um, monumental sort of programs. They all it was like a magnet. They were all sort of drawn to this uh, call to action as part of the Affordable Care Act to to make a big difference in our country. And so for me, I felt surrounded by luminaries um, in the industry, people who I'd read in the New England Journal or, you know, followed uh, at various points in my in my career, um, you know, that I was now able to work alongside, um, you know, and and so I, I learned a ton from them. I got to be part of some very important changes in this country. Uh, and just it was it was a really terrific, a terrific learning opportunity. Very cool. So then and patient ping. So, so at what point, you know, do you do you really come across, you know, the idea and say, hey, you know, it's it's time to make this thing happen? Yeah. So one of the big um, initiatives that we created uh, was programs so that a primary care doctor had a financial interest in keeping you out of the hospital. Um you know, so let's say a primary care doctor had, you know, a thousand patients that they have a relationship with. Before that primary care doctor, all they cared about was when they came to the clinic. You know, you showed up in the clinic, you see the patient, you have a consultation, and you send them off on their way. You know, maybe they get a flu shot, maybe they get a medication, or maybe it's just, um, you know, a bump or a bruise and they're fine. Um, and then the, the, you're out of sight, out of mind for that doctor. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, with with the programs that we were creating, the the we gave extra money to primary care doctors if they worried about their entire patient pep population. So let's say it was a, a thousand patients, and every time they kept those patients out of the hospital or out of the ER by delivering preventive care and saying, "Hey, it might be time for you to come in for your annual physical, or it might be time to do a colonoscopy, or if you've got diabetes, you know, to do your uh, hemoglobin A1C uh, read." Or you know, have them on weight loss programs if they're if they're obese and have cholesterol or hypertension issues, um, you know. So all of these types of programs and and you know, for them to be successful, um, one of the things that they needed was visibility into what was going on with their patients. So if you're taking care of a patient, a thousand patient panel, before again, you didn't worry about anybody until they came to your clinic. And, and it didn't matter if they showed up in the ER or they went to the hospital or they went to a nursing home or, you know, they went to another specialist or whatever. It just, it just didn't matter because you just worried about them when they came back to you. Now, if you're actually worried about their costs and all the costs that they're incurring, it's really important for you to have a, a sense of what's going on with them. So one thing that we kept hearing that um, these primary care doctors needed was knowledge on, you know, when the patient showed up in the ER, in the hospital, because that was a really important moment. Uh, to to intervene and you know support the patient and make sure they don't have something bad happen to them later. Just as a very simple example, 
oh, Alejandro, we see you're in the ER. Is everything okay? Can I schedule a follow-up appointment with you? Can I make sure that your medications that they just prescribed you aren't going to have a bad reaction with what you may already be on? Can I make sure that you know you understand your care plan, or if you need to get um, transportation to get to your specialist appointment, you know, and, and it's not necessarily um, a big problem for people who are younger or healthier, or you know, who can take care of themselves. This is a problem for people who are older, um, frail, elderly, have dementia, you know, don't have a lot of supports, you know, um, have social isolation, um, live in you know uh, disadvantaged communities. There's a lot of racial inequity as it relates to healthcare, and so those are the people who need a lot of support and care coordination. And one thing that they needed was to know where their patients were in real time. It's something very simple, which is tell me when my patients show up in the ER, when they show up in the hospital. And there was nothing out there to do that. Um, so so I left um, to build it. Uh, and that, that's what patient ping is. Nice. So then let's say, talk about, because I know how important for you, you know, like the first 10 employees are. So why, yeah. why are they so important, the, the first 10 employees? Well, I mean, I do think that they set the foundation for your your the DNA of your organization. And I mean, and five years into it or, you know, uh, longer, there may be a fraction of those 10 employees who are still at your company. And that's very normal. And that'll, that, that may happen. Um, but when you're really trying to design your culture, your brand, your um, reputation in the market, you know, how people think of your um, just the, the relationship with your company, particularly in enterprise software, um, where, you know, a lot of what you bring to the market is your, is your brand, um, you know, and, you know, there's a, you're selling into customers. And so they're, they're interacting with, you know, your team on a regular basis. It's, it's really important that, um, you set the right DNA, um, you know, to how you're going to deal with, you know, the way you handle sales conversations, the way you treat customers after they're live, the way you, um, you know, build your internal processes around recruiting and how do you, you know, collaborate with one another. Um, and, you know, that tone will be set and, and will last, you know, through the duration of your of your organization. Um, you know, and I, I, I do believe that and I've seen that, you know, over the past seven years. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important. That said, it's pretty hard um, to, you know, have all the time and luxury in the world to to pick those 10 employees. So, you know, you will make some mistakes. You just got to be prepared to iterate as you go. And in terms of the idea, uh, you know, there's a, a bunch of people right now that are listening that are thinking about, you know, they have an idea, you know, they're they're thinking about like maybe getting a co-founder or thinking about like the corporate structure, how they sh should think about this. I mean, should they, uh, you know, perhaps uh, wait until they find a co-founder to incorporate or should they go out and incorporate right away? Yeah, and this this may be I don't know if it's controversial or, or sounds crass or something or non collaborative or something like that, but you know, it if you have an idea um, or you have a problem that you're really passionate about, and you think you may you know you're pretty committed to starting a company, um, you know, to 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 ta to attack that problem, I, I would still incorporate. Um, I would just go get the thing done. You can do it on legal Zoom. It's super cheap. Um, a lot of law firms will um, have a startup, you know, quick start program where they'll, you know, do it for free for the first million dollars or so of, um, uh, you know, of funding or revenue. So, you know, um, I, I think you, the, the thing, the reason that's important is, is, a, is a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, it, it's it, you get the structure in place and that's helpful. But most importantly, it, you can either 
you have a choice with your co-founders. Either you can hire your co-founder or you can actually co-found and set up a founder agreement up front. Now, if you hire your co-founder, um, then you can fire your co-founder. If you set up a um, corporate structure where you're truly um, bound to the terms of a founder agreement, then the only way that you can part ways is if you divorce each other. Um, one is a lot easier uh, than the other. Um, and, you know, firing your co-founder, if, if it does get to that point, um, certainly takes a lot of friction out of the process. Um, so, you know, again, it, it is in no way is meant to be crass or, or um, you know, non-collaborative uh, or uncollaborative. Really what it's about is, um, is setting up the right structure in place so that, you know, if inevitably some of the hard things that happen with the startup happen, that you're able to think through them in advance and actually make, make those decisions quickly. Cause, cause the, those lingering decisions and those lingering hard things are, are what kill businesses. And I've seen this happen to a number of companies now. Um, and you know, the, 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 the one other point I want to make is even if, if you hire your co-founder, it's not like you're hiring an employee, you truly need to treat them like a co-founder. And that means you can even split the equity 50, 50, but um, it's clear who's the CEO or who's the person in charge, if one person sees left and the other person sees right, you know, it's going to be one person's way. And you need to make it really clear whose person is going, who which person is going to, is going to stay and which person is going to go. Um, and, and having a sole incorporation um, right out the gate often, often helps with that process. Got it. So I guess in terms of, you know, going back to patient ping, you know, like how did you figure out that chicken and the egg problem? Yeah. So, um, so we, we have, um, a business that has a, uh, you know, uh, a network effect, which means that, you know, the product gets better as more people join our network. Um, and so put simply, if you're a uh, primary care provider at, you know, just to use New York city as an example, let's say you are a primary care doctor that's independent and works out of their clinic in, um, you know, in Brooklyn. Um, or actually, let's say you're a primary care doctor that works at um, Columbia, New York Presbyterian, um, and you you show up at Montefiore Hospital in uh, in the Bronx. Um, you know, for our product to work, we have to get both Columbia and Montefiore on our network uh, for them to be able to share with each other. It's not that different than you know. Uber needing to get both drivers and riders on their network for, you know, it to start spinning for the flywheel to start spinning. Um, and, you know, when you're trying to get two sides of a market um, to, to move, it's like, it's like the first telephone, like the first telephone doesn't work when it's the first telephone. How do you sell the first telephone? You know, somebody else needs to be using it too. Um, and, and so that, that problem of the chicken and egg of how you get multiple parties to move at the same time, is really hard. Um, and the thing I've learned in startups is that there's hundreds of chicken and eggs. So for us, it was, in, you know, sort of implicit in our, in our product where we needed to get multiple parties to move at the same time to get the flywheel spinning within a region. Um, also you're, you're going to just deal with, you know, chicken and eggs constantly. You need to get your, you know, to get your first funding round, how are you going to get your first funding round until you have, um, demonstrated some traction? Well, how are you supposed to get traction until you actually have some money to go do it? That's, one example, you know, first customers asking for an ROI. Well, how are you supposed to get some ROI data until you have your first customer? So another chicken and egg. So a lot of a lot of what you need to do with the startup is to sell a vision, 
convince people for what is going to happen. And you have to be very convincing with that argument um, and then deliver. Like you can't just say you're going to do something and then not do it. Um, but if you build a track record of say you're going to do something and then somebody takes a leap of faith on you um, to sort of break that chicken and egg, you tell an investor, I'm going to go, you know, get traction. Well, go get traction then. And now you've resolved the chicken and egg. You know, you tell it um, for us, you tell Montefiore that you're going to go get, you know, Columbia on. Well, we got to go get Columbia on. Or when we tell Columbia, we're going to get Montefiore. We got to go get Montefiore. You have to deliver. If somebody take a leap of faith on, you know, you going to go do something, then, it, you know, as an entrepreneur, it becomes your obligation to, you know, to deliver. And I think that's how you can break the chicken and egg. And, and I guess for the people that are listening to get it, like what ended up being the business model of patient ping? Yeah. So we, we, um, if you're, if you're a provider and you want to know where your patients are, then that's what you, you pay for. Um, and, uh, and so that's, you know, that's a big part of, um, that's how we make money. So you, you, you know, you pay to, you pay to get a service that allows you to, to know where your patients are receiving care in real time. Got it. So obviously, you know, like you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised today? Um, a little, a little over a hundred, a hundred million. And and I understand that your seed round was uh, quite easy. If you were to compare that with your Series B round, why is that? What happened? Yeah. So our our you know so for our seed round, I was at a um, I was at a um, so in, in Mass. So our company is based out of Boston. Um, and you know, although in this world with COVID, who knows where? You know, maybe 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 based. <laughs> right. um, you know, so in a uh, in. In um in our seed round, we um we had um you know we had uh uh I, I wasn't going to to raise money. I was I was pretty keen on um you know just uh uh bootstrapping the business and you know becoming profitable and using customer financing basically to get it all going. Um, but and so but I was networking. I just moved to Boston. I didn't really know too many people there, and um and I. I I went to an event, uh, the Mass Technology Leadership Council, and um, there was this thing called the Unpitch, which the Unpitch is supposed to be an event where the VCs pitch the founders, but really it's not that. It's the founders are pitching the VCs. But you sit at a table, there's five founders, and um, there's a VC sit, seated at the table with you. So I, w I was seated um, you know, with this VC, and kind of in rapid succession, each, each of the founders went, um, you know, did their pitch. It was very quick. It was casual over, you know, over lunch. Um, and I was the last person to go. And I, I pitched this, um, you know, wonderful VC and, uh, he got really, really interested. Um, so he kind of like followed me afterwards and he started stalking me a little bit. Um, you know, asked me to come in, uh, to meet his partners. We went out to lunch. It was like a two hour lunch and, you know, um, and then, you know, very quickly um, after that, I had a term sheet for a million bucks. And um, and I was like, oh, OK, um, now I should consider uh, whether we should do a financing round for a seed round. And so I got advice from a bunch of people. I'd already had this term sheet. He was giving me a lot of pressure, telling me that that I should take it. But I was just like, I'm not I told you I'm not raising money. Um, and but then, you know, I went and got, you know, got a bunch of advice uh, from people and turned out that it would have made made a lot of sense for me to, you know, go do a financing round. So I actually put together a process and I, you know, found out some people who knew my industry and 
some investors that, you know, people um, had highly recommended because they have great reputations and, you know, are good people. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was, it was, you know, um, very easy. And now I, I do some angel investing and I do um, advising and I help companies and I see how, how difficult it can be. But I, I, the, the thing that I realized in hindsight that made it easy is that, um, you know, we were so focused on the customer and building a product that the customer wanted um, and was going to get real value from that, you know, that they would actually pay us for. Um, I, that's all that mattered to me was, was actually building something that they cared about and that they wanted, um, that, that they would find very valuable and for which there would be a market and nothing else really mattered. And I think, you know, uh, so when, with that focus, you know, investors obviously are, are very excited about that. So we had already had a product, we had had some traction. I'd done it extremely cheaply. Um, you know, we, we had some revenue coming in, not a lot, but very little. And so when, when I put those together, which I, I, I've always had this sort of emperor has no clothes, um, feeling where, um, I think I don't have, um, the progress, you know, it's sort of like, maybe it's always being an outsider as an immigrant or never feeling like, you know, I was sort of, um, uh, I don't know. I was always compensating or trying to find ways to, you know, to, to, to over deliver what other people's expectations of me were. And so, you know, whenever I do financing rounds, I always think I don't have enough, but I tend to always have more than what, you know, they're used to seeing at that stage. And so financings have been relatively, um, you know, relatively, uh, relatively easy for us. Got it. So how, how would you compare that to your series B round with Andreessen Horowitz? Yeah. So the, the, at that, at that point, the, uh, the, the financing, you know, um, the business had matured. Uh, we had, you know, revenue, we were growing, um, you know, meaningful revenue. We were, we were growing pretty quickly. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it was great to meet with uh, a number of VCs. I would say that I did, you know, uh, I did with one of the VCs, I made, um, a move, you know, being a little bit emboldened and seeing that, you know, we were having a lot of interest. Um, I probably, um, you know, I felt emboldened to, to ask for, um, what I wanted and what, you know, what I wanted for the business. And one of the things was, you know, a specific board member, but it, it was a board member who I hadn't really gotten to know, um, until, uh, until, you know, after the term sheet had been issued. And I didn't really realize this, but in the venture capital world, like the person who brings in the deal to their firm, um, and then, you know, uh, later on, um, shops it internally and, you know, brings it to their investment committee and gets the deal approved, um, you know, to go invest, they, they tend to be the person who's, you know, going to be on the board. And so to, to, sh to ask for something different at that stage in the game is like kind of not really something that, you know, entrepreneurs do and, and deals often fall apart. Um, if, if somebody does that, cause it's just not how, 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 how things happen. That said, I didn't actually realize this, but I was, you know, our company was so so highly coveted by that company that they actually, you know, I found out later that they said, you know, we should get that company at any price with whatever they, you know, whatever they want. Um, so I, I didn't realize my negotiating position, obviously. Um, but you know, I was in a really good, really good position. I didn't get what I wanted uh, ultimately, but I, I was very, very worried that, you know, I think I stayed up all night one night worrying that I created the deal by asking for something um, you know, that, that I wanted to protect the business in hindsight, 
I'm realizing, you know, I realize now when I ask entrepreneurs um, or when I, you know, advise entrepreneurs, I say, you know, it's very okay to ask. Like it's, it's very okay to ask as long as you ask in a nice way and respectfully and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's very okay to ask for the things that you want. You know, there, there, money is a commodity market. And so when you're raising venture capital, I think being clear with what your wants and needs are uh, upfront and then, you know, getting to, um, you know, uh, to, to what you want, if you do have strong interest, you know, it make it seem like it's this very heated, um, you know, uh, intense and, you know, uh, threatening process, especially after a term sheet is issued. And when you're in the heat of the negotiation, these, these folks are professional negotiators is what they do constantly. Um, it makes an entrepreneur feel timid or shy. Uh, to ask for what they want, it, it, it's certainly okay. I think I probably blew it out of proportion in my own head. Got it. So I guess, hey, for the folks that are listening, what is the size of patient ping today? I mean, anything you can share about perhaps employee numbers or anything else? Yeah, we're, we're about 150 employees. Uh, we're in, you know, 28 states uh, with our hospitals. We're in, you know, almost 50 states with, uh, with our network of uh, post-acute care providers. We've uh, you know, we're growing uh, rapidly. We're still hiring. And, um, you know, even even in, through this COVID um, crisis and, uh, you know, uh, the company's got a lot of growth ahead of it. And where do you think that your market as a whole is saying, where do you think it's heading? It's really exciting what's going on in our market. I think, um, you know, connecting providers so that, you know, you get really great patient care no matter where you go is a problem that needs to get solved. So let's say you're a snowbird and you spend half the year in Florida and the other half the year in New York um, and you're visiting your kids in Chicago and you know you go on vacation in California. I mean, no matter where you go in the system, the software is there. You know, These systems should be able to work with each other so that if you get care anywhere, skiing and you break, you know, you break your, you know, you break your, um, you know, your, your leg, like you, you should be able to pull the medical record down from all the different places that you've been at, uh, coordinate with those providers through, you know, collaboration tools that look and feel, you know, as modern as like a Slack, um, you can share data, you can, you know, pass the care notes to the patient. Like there, there's so much opportunity to build collaboration tools that allow providers to work together with each other, um, you know, in a very seamless and, and easy way. Um, and you know, we're just at the beginning of that. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And, and one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is obviously you've been at it now for, for quite a while with patient ping. Uh, and I'm sure that you've had your fair amount of lessons, you know, the ups, the downs, I mean, it's obviously not a straight line, you know, entrepreneurship, but I guess in your case, Jay, you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Jay that maybe is looking at launching a business. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? I, I think it's to um, do everything you can to make the, well, let me say this in a positive and negative way. Things are never as bad as they seem, nor are they as great as they seem. Um, and, um, and so, if, if you can make the highs less high and the lows less low, um, I think that'll help with your own mental health. Like, you know, I think, you know, the, the first time founder, first time CEO, you know, I think I, everything had so much personal weight and, um, uh, you know, uh, stress and, 
but you know that made Sahai's pretty euphoric when you when you experience them. Um, but uh, but they're very fleeting, and so you kind of move on to the next thing. And I think that that's a good way to be, um, you know, very passionate about what you're doing. But it's it's a it's an easy way to burn out. Um, and so if you really want to make this sustainable and long term, um, you know, there 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 I don't know if there is a way, but because um, some people are just wired a certain way, I probably am one of those. Um, but if there's a way to, um, you know, uh, have a relationship with your company that um, is is balanced, um, I, I would I would keep trying to find ways to do that. I'm still trying to find ways to do that, but um, I think that that's that to me is something that I, I wish I would have done more of when I was when I was earlier. Very profound. And I guess, uh, Jay, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so my email is jay at patientping.com, P-A-T-I-E-N-T-P-I-N-G.com, and shoot me an email. Amazing. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Great. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.